The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Todd Arnold. Todd grew up in North Dakota and saw West Point as a unique opportunity to see the world and challenge himself. While at West Point, Todd leaned into his strengths in computer science and carried it forward to his service as a signal officer. The war on terror stressed the military's ability to communicate vast amounts of information securely over distance at speed, and Todd found his capabilities in high demand. Todd's recent efforts have focused on ensuring that the Army recruits, trains, and retains those skill sets for the long haul. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hitting each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free, straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Today, we're speaking to Todd Arnold on Through the Gray. Welcome, Todd. Hey, thanks for having me, Joe. So, first question, why West Point? Uh, well, I was originally introduced to West Point because I had uh, two uncles that went here in the cl class of 80 and 81. And w when I was little, I was like, oh, for some reason, it just kind of stuck in my head. I, like, uh, I would like to go to school there. And I got older. You know, it's a pretty good place to go to school. Uh, the Army and the job and all the opportunities uh, afterwards uh, were also really appealing. And coming from North Dakota, like, well, this is a, a really good ticket out of North Dakota to, to a little bit more opportunities outside of the state and to, to see the world a little bit more. And, like, we we traveled a lot when I was a little kid, too. So, like, all of that kind of appealed to me. Like, let's give this a shot. And fortunately, it all kind of worked out. So what was your prep? Like, what did you do to, to make sure that you were ready to get into West Point? Well, th this is kind of thing with the, most of what I didn't really have, like, a long master plan of, like, okay, this is this is what I've got to do. It's, it's more like, well, this is what I want to do, and I'm just going to keep doing what I think is the right things to uh, just to make it happen. 
And I didn't really specifically do any one thing or I had a plan. It was just, it did kind of work out when I applied. Like I played lots of sports in, in uh, high school. I did uh, like band and played multiple instruments and, you know, kind of participated in a whole lot of everything. My parents were encouraging for anything we wanted to do and said like, no, you're going to be doing something. You're not just going to be sitting around at the house. So uh, all that just kind of really helped. It wasn't a, a master plan or anything. And then being from North Dakota, it's a little bit more of an opportunity. There's not quite as many people applying for it. So uh, that, that probably helped a little bit. But uh, in, in the end, just, just got good grades, worked hard, and it kind of worked out. I probably should have had a bit more of a plan because I think I only applied to two schools, West Point and the University of Minnesota. Uh, so it, it was one or the other. Kind of put all, all my eggs in one basket, even without that master plan. You got burned the ships, man, just like Cortez. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like, this is going to happen. Otherwise, it's going to be bad. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like walking into West Point uh, from North Dakota? How big of a, a, a culture shock was it? Well, like my hometown, uh, I don't think it even has 100 people anymore, but it was around 120. So it was a huge, just from that perspective, a kind of a huge, huge shock. Um, but I, I talked to my uncles quite a bit about it, and nothing can really fully prepare you for what's going to happen. Uh, but, but they had, had a lot of advice. Uh, one of them was, uh, he was still on active, active duty when I started, uh, special forces and he gave me the, uh, what is it? The, the Hellmore book, you know, we were soldiers and he said like, you know, just, just to make sure you want to do this. Like, this is what, what, what this place is supposed to do is to train you for battle and that sort of thing. So I had a lot of questions from him after that, but, uh, yeah, it was still, still a big shock. My first roommates were uh, really different too, right? So if you look at like the demographics of North Dakota, it's pretty much the same thing. My first roommates uh, were were fantastic. Uh, And really my first introduction to anybody like outside of North Dakota, right? right? And uh, any different backgrounds or anything like that. So uh, it was all a big shock, but I I really enjoyed it. And like the classes, I always find things that are like challenging to like inspire me. So I found it very inspiring to like, oh, this is hard. That's great. And that kind of drove me to try to do better and uh, kind of keep up. So what things did you struggle with the most when you first got there? Let's see. One, time management, which I think is a big thing for for everybody, right? Like uh, in in high school, like I, I never took a book home. Uh, if I had uh, any any homework, it was because it was like a reading and writing assignment that was supposed to take weeks, and I just take it home on like the last day and like knock it out or something. So, getting used to like okay, no, a little bit more effort is uh, required required here to to do well in the classes was a big one. Uh, I'd you know, done a lot of sports, so I was kind of into working out and fitness and all that kind of stuff beforehand, so that wasn't too big of a deal. But uh, yeah, other than other than that, it was really time management to try to figure out what's important. And then uh, the final thing was kind of like, oh, I'm not not, not getting kind of like straight A's and everything or, or fantastic grades and everything. I've got to figure out like which ones can I let slip a little what to bring the other ones up, right? So like, like for example, English and uh, French, where, where those two departments kind of kicked my butt. But uh, other than that, I had to figure out like, okay, I can let my CS classes slide a little bit so I can do better in these other ones. All, all a lot of time management. What was the highs? What was the things that you remember most that you got the most out of it? Uh, 
from the beginning, especially plea beer, and this will probably uh, not be a surprise uh, for where I ended up. Uh, some of the highs were that, like, I was actually told by some of the other cadets from North Dakota, like, oh, you know, you're going to struggle coming into the classes from North Dakota. I don't think they prepare you well for all the classes at West Point. And I was doing pretty well in the, in the classes at the beginning, you know, except for English and French. Uh, but uh, I was doing pretty well. And so that, that was pleasantly surprising to me. And then as it went on, some of my classmates, you know, some of the folks in G4 that had taken like AP classes and stuff like that in high school were coming to me for questions and help in classes. And so I ended up doing tutoring in math and computer science uh, shortly into the first semester. So I had like a little class like every other night, uh, especially for the computer science uh, CS 105. And like, I mean, that right there was like kind of the biggest one to me. Like, wow, I really enjoy this. And I always wanted to study computer science. I knew I was going to major in that before I even came here, but like, okay, I think I am pretty good at this and I can explain it to people. And yeah, that, that, that was one of my favorite things about it right off the bat. So how much did that, um, success drive your decisions for branch? It did a lot. Uh, and you know, my, my uncles and mentors and some of the other folks are like, you know, cause we, we do, we still kind of talk about a lot, like the combat arms are the way to go. It's kind of like you go to the air force academy, you want to be a pilot here. You want to kind of go combat arms. So I had, a, I actually had a real tough decision with that. I actually did my CTLT and armor out at Fort uh, Riley and had a, had a great time was on the tank, like pretty much the entire three and a half weeks I was there, but it kind of cemented my mind, like, you know, I, I enjoyed this, but I, really like like the technical side of things and I think I can have a lot more positive influence on that side and so uh with combined with all the teaching and how much I really enjoyed that aspect of it that that kind of drove my decision for branching later on and so um you, you pick the signal branch um, talk me through um post-selection and where you were going uh when you graduated well I want like part, part of the reason I like the army is like let, let you go kind of almost anywhere. So I, I was hoping I would do well enough in the class that I could get German and uh, with whatever branch that I ended up going uh, with Signal. I was like I really want for some reason I just really wanted to go to Germany as one of the few uh, places we could go you know outside of the U.S. And I figured it's a good thing to go right off the bat and somewhat of a real world mission, even though the cold war kind of wound down, you know, we still had like Kosovo and Bosnia and stuff like that were happening over there. So that was my, that was my main, main thing. It's not like I was like, Oh, once again, there was no master plan. Like I have to do this. It's actually like, hopefully in the end, like all my hard work pays off and I'm able to do this. And fortunately, fortunately it really worked out. Uh, jumping back a little bit to the branching choice though. Uh, I know, I know uh, if you ever talked to Matt Via, he, he really enjoys this story was, during our equivalent of branch week, when we showed up to do the, to, to ask signal versus MI, because the, the cyber stuff was literally just getting, getting started, right? There was one company uh, of offense and one, one of defensive cyber type stuff. And one was signal, one was MI. And we showed up to the branch week to, to ask them about like, Hey, which one is one of you like really does the computer stuff. And we were really interested in the offensive side of things. And there was nobody there from the MI side. And the signal core guys are like, oh yeah, we do computers. And so that kind of, <laughs> yeah, no, no joke. Like Matt, Matt loves this story because the MI guys weren't there and the signal guys were like, yeah, we do computers. So, uh, should sign up with us. And, and then we ended up doing that. 
So you're lucky he didn't have an arm guy in the room. He's like, I got a computer he, in this thing. Yeah, you know, we could have <laughs> we could have ended up in a totally different place. But uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of stuff happens happens by chance. <laughs> so talk me through graduation and uh, getting to Germany. Well, uh, let's see here. So a couple of interesting stories with that too, because. Uh, I almost tried to get out of Germany. Well, actually, we did try to get out of Germany, not like to, to not go to Germany, but because we wanted to, me and a couple of our other classmates, Matt is always in most of these stories. Uh, but after we were in, our class was the first one to do the cyber defense exercise, and we won, right? So it's the first time where like the uh, service academy set up these networks and tried to defend them against uh, NSA red team. And me and Matt and a couple others had done pretty well in our performance on there. And so the top civilian, the deputy director, uh, came to present the trophy to us for, for winning the first time. And he's like, you know, if there's ever anything you guys need, just you know, shoot me an email and I'll see what I can do. And so while we were at uh, the basic course, we're like, hey, this cyber thing is a little bit more popular. It's what we like. It seems like it's going to maybe one day start start going a bit more. So. Let's, let's email this guy and see if he can get us to Fort Meade instead. And because that's where everything is kind of happening from, you know, once we got to the base, of course, we actually learned a little bit more about the Army and how things work. And he's like, yeah, sure, let me see what see what we can do. And he came back with this, uh, which is probably not a surprise to anybody, but he's like, you know, the Army says all, all lieutenants have to be platoon leaders, so you guys are going to go off and do that first. So I, I, can't, I can't do anything about it. Which drove some of my later actions um, because of that. No, but uh, that was one of the first things. It was actually pretty early on. One of the things we tried to do at uh, the basic course, but learned a lot about signal, uh, the signal side of things, and how some of our equipment was a little bit outdated, uh, and you know it wasn't keeping up with technology quite as well as it should was at the basic course. And that that all came into play a lot when we were in uh, Iraq the very first time. It's just a few short years. Yeah, a year and a half or so later, uh, but uh, you know, learned quite a bit, and then get to Germany, and you know, just we were sitting there September 11th when uh, watching video, watching the news, uh, the tower strike, and you know, the first thing we all kind of look at each other like, like, well, that dramatically changes what's going to happen, what's going, what's going to go on from here, and so like, really nobody knew what was going to happen after that. Because like one one of the guys in the class got a call up like the next day because he was going to Fort Bragg. They're like, "Hey, yeah, just buy buy a storage container because you're 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 not going to be here. We're going to be bringing you directly somewhere else. We don't know where yet, but it's it's not going to happen." So we were all kind of very nervous about what what was going to happen, where we were going to go, and what, where we were going to end up. Uh, you know, very different from like the previous like twenty years or so for uh, most military experience for folks. So, but things had calmed down at least a little bit in Germany because people weren't deploying to Afghanistan from there when I got there. So they're like, you know, we're not planning on going there anytime soon. Just a little bit of heightened security, but that, that, that was about it when I arrived in Germany. I got there to be a platoon leader, just like I was told. So one one quick question, just for, for myself and for anyone that might be listening to this. Um, signals is pretty broad. Um, they have everything from line of sight, uh, FM communications, uh, to um, upper end uh, satellite uh, communications, bouncing signals up to satellites and back down. 
Um, so what spectrum were you at when you were a platoon leader? What were you focused on? Uh, more of the line of sight. And so it was called uh, at the time mobile subscriber equipment. We can go like theoretically, I think up to like 30 kilometers away to establish uh, line of sight communications between our radios and our di different, uh, they called node centers and uh, sends and at the time. But that was the primary one. You know, in, in Bullock, we learned, or our basic course, we learned all about uh, all the different aspects, all, all that. So I had a communication, FM communications, all that kind of thing. But we were primarily focused on line of sight and providing voice communications. But this was also an interesting time because they just a couple of years earlier just started putting like data communications over top of this same infrastructure. And so uh, didn't really get taught that in the basic course, but that, that's where I actually dove in a lot and started working on that like soon after I got there. And so just explain beta real quick um, for, for, for people who don't know it super well. Okay. So just th think of how the, how the communication happens between your computer, your cell phone, whatever it happens to be, and the internet and the servers or uh, like peer-to-peer -peer communication, like your, your phone, like your messaging from one phone to another, that sort of thing. So all that uh, has to get packaged up into the data and sent across. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's, what, that's what I'm more focused on. And this is where um, I think the importance of the global war on terror and having communications across the globe real time becomes so important and the role of signal becomes important. Because without that ability to talk and communicate over distance um, routinely, it's very difficult to be decisive and aggressive uh, against a very difficult to find force. Oh, ab ab absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, we, I spent like 11 months as a platoon leader trying, trying to work through all these systems and figure out how they worked and uh, going through and practicing, setting them up and doing it for a few exercises with my platoon. And, uh, you know, we, we get out there into Iraq and I had actually... It was funny. I transitioned to doing just purely the data side of things just before we went when went into Iraq, but it didn't work very well because of how old all the equipment was, and like even at that time, like the demands for data were driving things higher and higher, and we actually kind of flipped it on its head. It was originally designed to be more of a voice network, and primarily like it's just maybe a little bit of data, and by the end of it, like almost nobody wanted voice, the voice circuits on there, and we were just starting to get into voice over IP. So like everything, like big transition time and, and uh, actually how bad it performed during OIF-1 actually drove a significant amount of change for the Signal Corps for the next like 10 years. And this is at the same time that the, the role of Blue Force Tracker, which is basically GPS, GPS enabled or line of sight um, enabled uh, tracking of coalition forces and those FIPR or uh, text slash emails to each other also came into its fruition, taking that from uh, the units that, that started that at Fort Hood. Yes. Yep. And then, well, I, I will say they tried to have it come to fruition. It didn't because of how, how poor the data network performed and how bandwidth restricted we really were, like like a, a sizable link on that, those line of sight communications. And even for our satellite communication at the time, it was like two two megabits. And that's for like, at one point we had over 160,000 troops in Iraq trying to all push data and consume all that stuff across a backbone of two megabits per second, right? So 
I saw how that didn't didn't work that well. And so you come back from Iraq, and what's your job following that? Well, actually, my job it was interesting. My job going into Iraq was to change into the the be the data engineer for the brigade. So I left platoon leader just before, and it was so much fun. They're like, uh, no kidding, Friday morning. They're like, hey, you got that data engineer job that you that you wanted. And that means you're leaving for Kuwait this afternoon. So drive down to this other base in Germany, pick up your tickets and all your stuff and uh, go. So I was the da- data person for the 22nd through uh, all of OIF-1. And I actually continued on that job from that point in like December 2002 up until the, the time I left in uh, mid-2006. So now, I got to, got to be pretty good at that job. Now, what did you do that from in inside theater and and then back in Germany, back and forth? Yep, yep. So uh, I, I I like to tell my cadets, especially now as I'm teaching uh, networking. You know, my my first network that I ever ran was actually the exercise network for Third ID when they were sitting in Kuwait running around doing stuff. My second one was the core headquarters exercise before Iraq, and my third network I ever ran was the was the actual network for the uh, liberation of Iraq. So n- n- nothing like uh, on-the-job training, right? And so, so uh, when I w- went back, uh, still kind of setting up the same thing, but like trying to integrate more like new technologies and figure out how we can support more with without much of an improvement in, in the technologies and stuff like that. Now, how did you do that as, as, a, as a young lieutenant, junior, junior military officer? How did you, you manage that? Were you just the smartest guy in the room, or did you have uh, key leaders that it, it empowered you and delegated that authority down to you? A little, little bit of both. Uh, I mean, the, one is having some confidence that uh, you are, are the smartest person, or maybe one of one of the smarter people in the room. Like I, I uh, during the cyber defense exercise that we did when we were cadets, I'd done the networking portion, and I re- really enjoyed it. So I'm like, I, I know I can do that. And I told my first uh, company battalion commander that uh, a little bit afterwards, like, well, I'm pretty good at this. So following two minute time, I'd really like to go do this, this data thing. And there was uh, one other captain in, in the brigade headquarters and then one in another battalion that kind of really did it. And one, one of the interesting things, though, too, is uh, a, a lot of it comes down to timing. So the army had, I think in 99, they had just decided we're going to make some new functional areas. So like functional area 24. Uh, which is now 26 Alpha, is the telecommunications or the networking engineer. So there was almost none of them in the Army at this time. There was only a, only a handful, but the Army knew they needed to do it. So some units were starting to think, like, okay, how do we make the people that can do this, and who should we let, let do these things? Because we know it's, know it's a job. So I said, like, I can do that stuff. And the person who was doing it for the brigade was about to ETS as well. So they're like, well... She's leaving, and we are going to need somebody for this fire rack, so we're going to grab we're going to grab Todd, and they also grabbed one other lieutenant who was actually also happened to be ETSing. So both of the other two left that summer, and I, I was the last one left standing. That's a lot of weight. <laughs> yes. Yep. <laughs> so, but uh, like I said, I really, I really enjoyed, it. and and you know the army gives you a lot a lot of responsibility at a very young age. Like one of my one of my buddies ran the network for a Fortune 500 company, which was the size of one of the battalion's uh, networks in Iraq. And we, at one point, we had 10 of them. So I was running something like multiple multiple times larger than like this Fortune 500 company. And like he had to go through a committee and get people to approve his changes and 
I could just say this is what we're doing, and everybody did it, right? So uh, it was pretty interesting. And as the Army transitions and the role of networks and, and these data centers to support communications across that breadth of the theater becomes more important. Um, talk me through the, the, the rise in, in, in what you and, and Matt Vea learned about both defensive and offensive cyber to maintain that network. Well, we'd always uh, kind of been into the, like, how, how do you break into things and how do you do it? Like, uh, I know this just like hack, hacking type stuff. And this is something that I, I try to teach now is, you know, if you're good at one, it should help you do the other, uh, right? So, like, we, we focus a lot more on the off, on the offensive, like, how do you break into things? We're like, okay, but now we're the ones building and running the network, so we, we have to put some of this toward, towards defending it. And so, you know, re really tried to help be a proponent of some of that uh, from the beginning, worked with a lot of our, like, uh, firewall guys and early intrusion detection systems and stuff like that when they were, I mean, Nobody outside of a handful of people even knew what those things were when we were trying to put them on the networks. Uh, we, we tried to put them on uh, onto like the SIPR networks, so you know our secret networks and stuff too. But like the, a lot of the systems that we run are not well documented and don't uh, function according to the standard protocols. So that, that makes it very difficult to do some of those things. But we, we, we tried as much as we could. And a little bit, uh, you know, after a couple of years, Matt actually got out and got uh, went over to the NSA and was doing things. It's like, hey, you, you really need to start looking at, at this kind of thing. Or, hey, this is really cool. You need to talk to these people. So uh, looking at and doing a lot of that like, kind, of, kind of helped drive some of the decisions and some of the way that they thought about things going forward. And so, but the, like the war, war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan kind of consumed things. So uh, for a few years, didn't do as much on, on what is now considered cyber, but always kept in the back of our mind and try to keep tabs on what was, what was going on. And so you come to the end of 2006. Um, what next? Well, uh, this happened quite a few times in uh, my career. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm planning on getting out as soon as I get back from the, uh, from the second deployment to Iraq because you can see the future is just going to be this constant deployment, which is great, but it kind of get a little burnt out. So I'm like, if, if I can't break that cycle, I'm pro probably going to be heading out after this. And this is, this is where the good leaders and mentors uh, come into play. And they're like, well, what do you want to do instead? Well, how can we keep you in the army? Like, well, I'd really like to go to grad school and go back and teach at West Point. And they're like, well, all right, we'll make that happen. And, and they did. Like, I, I thought I was asking for a ridiculous amount of stuff. And they, they, they just said, yeah, go. And so, uh, and I also slipped into a loophole because at that time they changed uh, the rules for being a, a functional area. They dropped the requirements down from seven years to four years, but uh, technically our class wasn't eligible for it. And they're like, well, if I send you to grad school, then you automatically become a 24, so we can slip you into the to the 24th. And so even though I'd been doing a 24 job, I wasn't technically a 24, but we can slip you into officially becoming one by, by doing this, and then we can send you off to, to West Point uh, after that. And so... Uh, that, that's how I got to go to grad school, and the functional area paid for it. Talk me through, what did you get out of grad school and then um, carry forward when you became a, a, an instructor at West Point? Uh, 
But some of the things, especially about how to do do research, and that's uh, one of the things I, I, I try to try to teach my cadets back then, and especially kind of hammer home now a little bit more is like I maybe like those those top five ten like people in the class like scholarship winner type folks had gotten like a little bit of introduction to like this is research and this is how you go about it and this is what other universities do, but I, I don't remember getting any of that. So like understanding like what what is life like at other universities and how does research occur and like uh that that was the biggest thing that i brought forward and uh actually uh west point is doing a lot of changing now to try and get cadets a little bit more into research and kind of preparing some of them a little bit better for, for grad school so I, I felt like you know our classes and everything prepares for the coursework in grad school but the the research perspective of it uh not so much so that's kind of the biggest lesson I'll try to try to bring back from that. How did you like instructing? Uh, I I oh I'm I'm back here now doing it uh, permanently. So obviously I liked it quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> I really did. Yeah, I re I really enjoyed it, and it was uh, really interesting. So I had grad school. I had a little bit of a off time between grad school and when I came back because since West Point didn't pick me directly, it was the the functionality twenty four branch. Uh, I had to go do a 24 job to get uh, qualified for promotion uh, before I could come back to West Point. So I had a little bit of time. And that's when I went to uh, the NETCOM, the, the Global NOSC, and then uh, Army Cyber Command. But, you know, it, it was so much fun. And, like, all my my follow-on assignments and stuff after that, like, I, I had such a good time, like, teaching the cadets and seeing that light bulb go off and uh, seeing them, like, oh, well, this is pretty cool and this is the type of stuff that I want to do. And then I was actually able to recruit and uh, have a lot of those same former cadets on my team so standing up and doing a lot of the initial cyber branch stuff. So it was like really like everything kind of kind of, kind of full circle uh, in a very short amount of time. So I, 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 it was one of my favorite things so far in the Army. That's awesome. I'm sorry I skipped over your time at Cyber Command. Um, oh, no. It's, oh, no. It's all good. I've been there a few times, so. What did you get out of that experience? You came out of uh, Penn State. Um, you're prepping to go to West Point, but that two and a half years at Netcom, did that broaden the aperture of what you had done and seen in, in Iraq and Germany? A, a little bit. It did, yeah, because uh, Netcom is supposed, supposed to run the uh, Army network and, uh, you know, kind of from Iraq and stuff. Like I assumed, like, okay, the Army's got its own portion of the of – the, uh, uh, Department of Defense network that it runs and does all those things and found out like, well, it's not, not really as well organized at the time as I had expected, right? So kind of opened my eyes and like, okay, this is this is how the bigger army works. This is really, really straightforward when you're down at the tactical level. Like there's the three-star commander, he's in charge of a couple of two-stars. Like, you know, you know who you answer to. Whereas at, at Netcom, it was like, well, we have like four different bosses and sometimes giving conflicting guidance and like, this is this is really hard to get anything done, uh, but it's possible, right? You just have to be really, really stubborn about it and stand by your convictions if you think it, think it's important. If you can convince, convince the boss that it's really important, they'll help you get it accomplished. And so, but I, I was, I think I was the only person in the entire army that actually had access to all the like post camp station edge routers, so I could see the entire army network, even even though it wasn't as nicely organized as I I, I was hoping, but accomplished quite a bit and was able to say, oh, wow, we have a whole lot of these different problems and some things that 
I might think are easy, like uh, at, at and they really were down at the tactical level, but they're not nearly as easy here at uh, at such a high level. And like one one example was really good, like an infected IP came down. They said, "Oh, well, th- this is you know we've got this bad thing on on the network. We don't know where it is, so we're giving them like seventy two hours to get it off of the network, and hopefully they find it." And I'm like. That should take us no more than an hour. And they're like, yeah, that's impossible. So I, I made a few phone calls, and within 45 minutes, I, I was talking to the uh, person in, in in Afghanistan in the 101st talk to like, no, you need to go like unplug that thing from there. That is that is amazing. So like, okay, this this is how we can start improving some of this defensive stuff because I can be a little bit more proactive. And if we understand what the network looks like, then and you know you know you know how it works, then then we can actually do things a little bit faster. So. Now, can I simplify what um, what you do and let me know if it's right or not? Sure. And so, like in networks, it's similar to the problem that you ran into. You went to Net Netcom, is you have a constellation of commands and you have a constellation of people in charge, but it creates friction uh, because of the complexity. Um, networks are very similar. Is they were not all designed at the same time. They were not all designed to interact with each other. And so, what they're asking you to do is in the short term, you do these workarounds. You're making a phone call down to Afghanistan. But in the long term, what you're trying to do is smooth the ability of networks to talk to each other and to reduce that friction through either standard operating procedures that you will all talk this way in this common doctrine or this common uh, code language. Is that really what you're doing? Uh, a, a little bit uh, because they all do have to speak some common languages to be able to operate in Iraq. But they can they can do that internally in, in separate different ways. So it's like they can they can do things on their own, and then when they have to interact with somebody else, they can speak the standard language. And it it's and it's tough because uh, you want to try to get everybody uh, you know hopefully speaking the lang- same language internally, but everybody has competing interests as well, right? Like so, like networks are designed for the purpose person function of whoever's using them right and i might be using my network for one thing and this is how i can configure it and make it work so that it does what i want whereas you would do something slightly different and like me at like the the higher headquarters like well these two things are totally separate how do we even like try to make a standard for these two networks to do to 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 do different to do this accomplish the same thing when they're configured completely differently right and so trying to make things that could be applicable across the board is is really challenging, but I, I was able to do it a, a little bit and convince some people to use some of my uh, solutions. So so it was satisfying. And you're also asking them to do that while the plane's in flight, and, yes. and, they, yep. and, and they don't want to crash it. <laughs> no, you do not want to take things off offline. Uh, I mean that does happen sometimes, but the people get really mad when, when that happens. And so. You're complete with Netcom. You go forward as a professor, and um, you're having that great experience with cadets. Did did that really kind of open your eyes on what you wanted to do for the remainder of your career in the army, or when did you know what you wanted to do next? Uh, so some of it actually started at, uh, at Netcom Army Cyber because uh, time time was kind of kind of interesting. I was there when they you know just after the big security incident happened then the dod finally started kind of like okay yeah the cyber thing is kind of really a thing 
So I, I was not on like the planning teams and stuff like that, but I was right there as they were trying to design like, okay, what did like the cyber mission forces look like and how are we going to stand up this like U.S. Army or this U.S. Cyber Command? And so I, w- I was actually there and on the, on the team when we initially stood up Army Cyber Command too. So I got to see, see things starting to grow and take off. I'm like, okay, this is, re- this is really important because this is what like uh, Matt and I and some of our other classmates have been working on for, for years. And almost all the other ones of them had gotten out. So I was kind of like the last, last one remaining that was still working on, on this effort from, from uh, that original group of like CS majors anyway. And I'm like, no, this is this is really important. And now I, I know, like, I have an idea of where I want to go, what I want to do. And uh, I, I could, could see because I was right there, like, these are the things they're not doing yet that I think are really, really important. So let, let, let's see how we can get some of those things accomplished to, to move things forward. And then I was able to do a lot of that once I got up to West Point. And once again, had had some good bosses and mentors that, that helped out with things. But I'm you know, like, this is what I think needs to happen. Like think that's right and they were like-minded so we all, all, all work to try try to actually make it happen and so your time at, at west point completes in 2014 um talk me through being like basically standing up um being one of the lead developers for cyber command yeah so uh so the one of the last things we did as i was pcsing from west point was uh the folks in dag1 actually said like Hey, you know your your plan for that whole cyber branch in the army. Like, s- send us what you wrote in word word format and all the heraldry and all all the stuff that uh, you and a couple other folks up there designed. And we're just going to copy and paste that, and that's what that's what we're going to go with. So I, I got when I got down to Fort Meade uh, was my follow on after West Point. They're like, okay, now you're going to be on the 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 panel that's actually like writing 600-3 and creating the MOSs. And we'd had this grand master plan of, you know, there's going to be all these different MOSs for the, or different jobs for all these different roles that are, we think are important in cyber. And like, you get three. All that great plan, you only get three. One for warrant, one for officer, and one for enlisted. And then we'll figure things out from there. So like, okay. I, at that point, I made it my mission. I know like one of the, I felt one of the most critical things for moving forward is like, we need to be able to create and make our own tools in cyber, like our own capabilities. Use your imagination, you know, like if, you, if you're trying to get into a network and maintain a foothold and do stuff, like you need need to be able to do that. And so we need people to, to actually write that code and make those tools. So I, I felt that the, the next MOS that we really had to have was the developer MOS. And some other people started some parallel efforts, uh, but I was able to convince them that, like, you know, my, my way was a little bit better uh, or should be the way that we should go. Uh, I had helped to handpick the first six cyber officers before there was even a branch. Uh, and, and those were the, actually the first ones that were actually trans- transitioned over into the cyber branch. And they were at uh, Bullock at this time. And I'm like, okay, you know, like we've got, uh, we, we've got an opportunity here. Uh, we, we, I can bring a handful of you up here to start like actually working on like writing code and show, showing everybody like, yes, like officers can do this or at least uniform personnel in general can write this code and do, do some of these things. And so uh, I actually called called two of them. They were driving back from an extra course in their MI Bullock because it was before the, the cyber branch was official. And I said, like, hey, what are you guys doing? They're like, oh, we're going to go sign in. And we're going to pick up our stuff and go sign in in two days at uh, Fort Gordon, which is where they're going. I'm like, 
don't do that. You'll, you'll have different orders. If you trust me, you'll have different orders in like 48 hours. So like it'll be, it'll be close, but don't go sign it. Okay. And then brought all, brought all three of them up uh, to start, start working in, in writing code and showed everybody that, like, Hey, uniform people are smart enough to do some of these things and create cool things. And then we brought a couple more folks on and like took on a slightly bigger project and impressed the R cyber commander. And we ended up getting some, some awards from the, uh, from the Secretary of Defense for like for that work, so we got got some pretty pretty high visibility on it. Like this is really good, and they're like, okay, now here we think we should expand this a little bit more. And so was able to handpick another ten uh, lieutenants and captains right out right out of the basic course and the transition course for cyber. Some of the first ones, and bring them up and start standing this up. And, and at that point, they're like, okay, we have a couple other uh, some of the enlisted developers that we we're trying to bring along. Let's start consolidating all of them together. So I had to convince everybody like, yeah, this is one, it's a good idea. Like, no, we've demonstrated this a couple of times already. Yeah. Like if we put a couple of them together, we can do some really cool things. So convinced everybody like, yeah, we should consolidate all of these disparate efforts in, into like one organization. And from there we'll gain a lot of benefits because we have some of the junior folks working with more senior ones. We can mentor them. We can bring them along and we can probably get this thing, thing kind of like set up and structured so that this is repeatable and we can start doing some of these things. And so my, it took two years to convince everybody to, to do that. And then the last year I was at uh, Fort Meade, I actually was able to set it up and run it and do it. And, you know, it, it worked out great. We had a, a lot of success uh, with the tools and capabilities that some of the brand, brand new lieutenants, a couple of E4s, E5s were, were doing. And then, like, we really only had, like, three seasons developers that had had a, a lot of experience but like they provided a lot of mentoring and uh structure for for those junior developers and at the same time we're like okay to make this repeatable we, we need to start planning for this to be be like an mos an actual official job in the army and so we started uh uh chief bishard was his name he's down at the cyber schoolhouse now he started like doing all the papers like somebody that this is how the joint force does all these qualification things. So we're going to start off like doing it the hard way and put everything, all the processes and all the paperwork in place. So that like once it gets approved, like the joint forces are going to recognize all, all this stuff. And so it took gosh, four years from that point to actually get it official. Uh, but actually now they're saying that the army standard is going to be the joint standard for how we train and create these developers across the cyber mission force. But it took a lot of convincing and then a lot of, a lot of effort to protect some of, some of those uh, junior folks to to be able to allow them to sit there and work and write code and make these cool capabilities and stuff like that. So uh, that that was and, and interestingly enough that was the first time since my platoon leader time that I'd really been in, been in charge of like a large group of people. The rest of my time had really been kind of hands on. So so that that was very different. And so let me just like put this in perspective. Um, some people start up companies and they're they're looking for capital, they're looking for investors, but the, the biggest hindrance they have is they, they're trying to sell or create a product that the um that the public wants. You're trying to create a new organization inside of the army that is fighting for money, fighting for resources, and fighting for talent. And it's taking from other parts of the army. And you have to communicate to leaders of higher rank and greater experience uh, in the military, why you had value, 
How difficult was that? In, in some cases, it was pretty easy because uh, you know, especially once we started demonstrating, like oh, just a little bit of effort from a couple of people can add tremendous value. Uh, but in other cases, it was extremely difficult. They just re- refuse refuse to hear it in some cases. And part of it is like the army mentality too of okay, what is a tra- traditional uh, work role or what, what at at each rank, right? So, for example, like officers are the ones in charge and managing and directing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, warrants are the technical experts, and then the enlisted are the doers, hands-on. But one of the problems was, uh, especially in the developer aspect of it, and, and to some extent the, the greater cyber branch, is that the reason, like, for instance, Google and Microsoft and all those folks don't hire people right out of high school, put them through, like, six months of training, and then throw them onto their systems is because... They only hire people with like a computer science degree or a lot of experience that's basically equivalent to computer science degree. And the army had tried for a little bit to 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 do the, the former, where they're just taking people, putting them through a little bit of school and doing things, but they were missing some components, right? They they didn't have some of that reinforced learning and some of that under, understanding and fundamental knowledge to go in and take like the next step. And uh, another part of the problem there is also the the army's pay scale, right? So, like the if you did get, uh, and we still do find uh, enlisted developers, junior enlisted developers that typically do have some computer science uh, undergraduate work, if not a computer science undergraduate degree. Like those people can add at least a hundred thousand dollars to their salary by getting out of the army. So, like all of these things are kind of competing against us to be able to set up and, and do this thing. But we were able to convince them, and like actually the the, the seventeen Delta MOS. Because of some of those arguments, was we were ultimately successful, and it is there are no enlisted billets for developers. There's not a pure MOS. It is a feeder almost directly into being a warrant officer developer, right? So it's going to be an officer and warrant officer heavy heavy field within cyber. But yeah, there there was a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of convincing that had to occur. But Anytime you actually show success in the, in the, you know, the commanders, the supporting and supported commanders, you're like, oh, this actually does have an effect, uh, then they start buying in pretty quick. And, and just to peel back just a hair on this, um, what, is the, what is the importance of having a soldier in uniform doing some of these offensive and defensive functions versus having a contractor or a civilian? Some of that might be a little bit philosophical, but uh, I really feel like there is some things are inherently one governmental and two inherently like military, right? If we were taking an action and like doing something that might result in like the loss of lives, uh, because like say for instance we stop stop power somewhere uh, with a cyber effect and it could affect hospitals and like you know ultimately could could be taking those lives. That is something that we entrust in our society to the military. And I think we, we have to have people that know and understand that field in the military in order to be able to, one, advise commanders on making those decisions, and two, actually executing and having those effects. So I, I personally feel very strongly about it. That is actually one of the ways that I originally got the first three three lieutenants in there to do development was they were going to spend millions of dollars for one year to be able to like maybe contract and get these people to do like one capability to do one specific thing I'm like well for no money essentially and we can put that two million dollars somewhere else i can grab these three lieutenants and i could probably have them knock that out in like a month and they did and so like oh wow that that, that does have an effect and so yeah it's 
Yeah. Yep. And so I want to go two places from this. Um, first off, you you end up going back and getting your doctorate um, and a master's degree in philosophy. Why? Uh, well, the uh, Columbia ends up just awarding a master's of philosophy, but it's a master's of philosophy in electrical engineering. So it's it's kind of like getting a master's of science, but I don't know why they call it a master of philosophy, but it's for some of those additional work. Uh, but I, I went back because one, I wanted to actually go back to West Point and continue continue teaching, and uh, I, I thought it was one of the most impactful assignments I'd ever had was actually being back here teaching and hoping to inspire cadets to one kind of kind of do some of the technical stuff and then go out and hopefully be able to apply that in the army, and, and it paid off a lot in the end because I was able to convince some of them along the way, like, hey, I, I you might be putting some of your career at risk by taking these chances, but like, if you, if you trust me, this is what we're going to do. And they, none of them said no uh, ever, which is really surprising to me that they trusted me that much, but it's worked out very well for all, all of us along the way so far. Uh, but that was my, my big driving thing. like, I really wanted to come back here and continue on with that, that, that kind of mission and that kind of effort that I, that I had been working on when I was here the first time. And the second one is as, as one of the, the proponents creating this new branch, how do you make sure that the seeds that you sown, that culture of the initial group, last <laughs> beyond you? <laughs> that, 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 that is an ongoing challenge. And uh, that's another one of the reasons why I wanted to come back here is to, to help try to inspire who, like, I, I feel people with the right mindset and, and the right things, right? Like, uh, some people ask me a similar question, like, oh, well, I've got this idea and the army is about to take and do something like what happens? Like, well, you, you have to be okay with them taking off and it might be going in a different direction. You can, you know, once you unleash it, like you don't have full control over it anymore. So I had to kind of accept that and let that keep going. But I, that, that's why I've continued to stay engaged. And even while I was at grad school, like uh, calling down and working and working with folks on, okay, this, this is what we want to do. Uh, trying to talk to like the people that I trust and are now in good positions to try and influence it. Uh, so just staying very, very involved and then trying to inspire some, some of the younger generation to like, okay, I, I know you might not want to take your hands off of the keyboard. I know I, I didn't, but it is really important to do so. Right. Like, so when, when I was a Lieutenant, there, there wasn't this cyber branch. So like it wouldn't have happened if, you know, like if Colonel Conti, who, who is uh, one of my, bosses here and at the ACI and stuff like that hadn't been willing to step away from the keyboard and do this. It wouldn't have set us up for this so that we could create this branch and do all those other things. So trying to convince uh, some of the junior officers to do some of those less desirable jobs, like uh, going and working at HRC or down at the cyber schoolhouse and stuff like that. Uh, it, it's not easy, but uh, it, it's a necessary evil sometimes. What's next? What's the way ahead for for you and for the branch? Well, uh, I I really think that you know our, our original vision. If if, if I, I point people back to the original paper we wrote that uh, you know HRC kind of took is like here's 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 our foundation for how we're going to make this uh, cyber branch. Uh, still is a pretty good guide, like and. Like the pendulum goes back and forth on things, uh, right? Like they'll, they'll say, like, oh, we need just leadership, or we need more of the technical. I think there's there's a the real big balance is finding those people that one can and do understand like the technical components of it, 
And if they really want to be just, just hardcore on the technical side, we need to have those MOSs and those jobs for them to be able to do some of those things. Because those skill sets are not easy to find. And once we find people that are good at them, we need to let them do those things. Uh, but at the same time, we do need strong leadership inside of the branch to make some of those decisions and, and lead, lead the formations. But they need to have a technical underpinning. So we need to like come together and like, okay, this is, like, I think we laid it out pretty good in the first couple of papers we wrote. But this is what, what we want, want the people in the branch to look like. And here are some of the other specialties that we need inside of the branch. For example, uh, they're, they're called IONS, the interactive on-net operators, the people that go out and use those capabilities that the, that the developers write and are out there in adversary networks. Uh, overall, the DOD is not doing that great, but the Army is not doing that great at finding and identifying those people and keeping them in uniform right now. And part of that is because they are, are we don't have an MOS or a way of protecting them just kind of like the way we did with the developers previously, we didn't have a way of, oh, you're really good at writing code. Congratulations, you got to do that for two years now, go do something else. Like, if this is an area of expertise that we really want them to have, then we should have a way of like, what is a, what is a viable career for them to be able to go in, go in and do this. And so I, I think the next thing that needs to come about is probably an operator MOS. Uh, there's, there's some analyst type stuff that I think, like data analyst and intelligence analyst type stuff that I think needs to occur. But I think we're going to find a little bit more like small specialization tracks uh, that people can stay in and focus on, and a little bit more of a, a focus on some of the, the technical underpinnings uh, for, for people in the branch. It's just the size of the Army, uh, the size of our budget, and the scope of the work we have to do. Um, I think sometimes people misunderstand how difficult it is to create a structure and a system that lasts. You can keep it for maybe one or two turns of key personalities, but you have to back it up with doctrine, with an organization, with a training methodology, with material um, and facilities and policies. And if you don't do all that right, it's like the wheels on a wagon are just, it's shaking and eventually it's gonna fall off. Yes. And, and that, that falls back to you know a couple of questions ago. How, how do you keep this going, right? We've got got to convince some of those younger folks that you know are one are very passionate about it and you know kind of have the right mindset. Like, no, you you need to make the effort to keep those training wheels on or take the training wheels off and build up like a better structure. Like, okay, it's not, it's not a bike anymore now. It's like a four four wheeler or something like that. So like it's a lot more stable and you can keep moving it forward. But you have to be willing to put in that effort and drive things forward in order for it to actually keep moving forward. So it seems like every, every time uh, we, we let up, we might take a step back. And so it is, a, it is an ongoing issue, I, I would say. I think this is getting us really towards the end uh, for, for wrapping up this interview is looking back on your West Point experiences and looking back on defining success and happiness how has that gone for you on your trip, on your on your life journey? I, I would say I'm very happy and very satisfied with uh, you know ups and downs throughout, throughout the whole journey, but I'm overall very very satisfied. And it's really interesting. Never would have imagined ending up here. Like I said, multiple times at the crossroads, where I was thinking about getting out. But uh, overall, very 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 happy. I think I've had a I think I've had a positive influence on the Army. The, the Army's had a very positive influence on me, and 
uh, you know, it's been mutually beneficial across across the whole 20 years, I think. So very happy how things have turned out. Again, just in, in, in hindsight, everything you've, you've talked about today and everything you've done, just hats off to you, man. Like standing up as a part of a team, standing up a branch with inside the Army is unfathomable to me. Because uh, as an armor officer, we're constantly fighting over like structure of how many tanks, how many Bradleys in a recon unit. Um, but to stand up cyber and, and have the success that you and your team have created and that, that momentum is absolutely crazy. It's, it's very cool. It's exciting. I, I, I still kind of smile every time I see like any, anybody wearing the cyber colors or the shield or the insignia, anything. I'm like, yeah, yeah. still a point of pride. I'm like, that's pretty cool. All right. Um, I'm going to give you uh, final com comments uh, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. Uh, I don't really have anything else to add. I think this went pretty well. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Hopefully Todd. people enjoy listening. I, I do. And I think we kept it at a high enough level that we didn't get into the weeds on stuff that uh, they didn't understand. <laughs> Could always do that if anybody wants. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Todd. All right. Talk to you later, Joe. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please give us five stars and follow our podcast. It helps us gain visibility and helps us share our stories.